Jolene. And I'm Emma. Two costume designers who share love of horror and fashion history have brought us together to deep dive the horror genre, going behind the scenes to uncover, understand, and analyze iconic horror characters and costumes that are simply to die for. On this episode of To Die For, we are diving straight into the Scream legacy, from analyzing Cindy's evolution through her wardrobe to the history of the iconic Fun World ghost face mask. We'll be breaking down the building blocks of one of the best frightening franchises in horror history in part one of our Scream two-parter extravaganza. Today, we'll be chatting about the first two films and spending some time breaking down the moments that shaped the franchise as we know it today. And stay tuned next week for part two, where we chat about Scream 3, Scream 4, and the recent fifth installment, and dissect how the franchise has shifted throughout the years. And of course, we'll give you our official rankings. Also, I'm back from hiatus, and I am so excited to get into this. Jolene, I'm so happy to be back chatting with you. I am so happy that you're back too, Emma. I know that you were super busy, and I- So are you. I know, I know, but like, I was busy from my home. You were making a movie. (laughs) Well, you were making movies before you were busy at your home. That's true. So you win. (laughs) Um, So, okay. Where do you stand as a Scream fan? How big is, like, your fanfare for the franchise? I love this franchise. It is one of my favorites because Wes Craven is hands down my favorite horror director ever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So So it's one of those movies where I don't remember the first time I watched the film because it's just been such a part of my life throughout horror history. Right. Yeah. How about you? Yeah. I, it's so funny. I, when I was a kid, I never watched the Scream movies, which is strange because I was super into horror as a kid. It just was like a total blind spot for years. Like I didn't grow up on it when I maybe should have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then probably when I was like a late teen, um, I watched the first Scream for the first time and I loved it. I became a massive fan. And it's been really cool because I, I think before, joining twitter like a year however long ago i when i joined twitter um and i really saw i feel like twitter is the most vocal place where where the horror community kind of lies on the interwebs and um it was really cool seeing how many people truly love like the fanfare for this film and the fandom for these films this franchise it's massive i would say it's at this point more massive than most franchises yeah um currently um and it was just really cool to see how many people really really love the film i think upon rewatching, i was just like yeah this is a masterpiece yeah um it's it's so well done um like you said wes craven's an absolute genius and i think seeing him direct um a film like this not to mention kevin williamson who's also yes. a massive genius for writing this but to direct a film like this after you know what we saw from Wes Craven in the 80s I think was really cool and also just a cool opportunity for Wes Craven I feel like to kind of like come back and and do this yeah yeah and I I always think about just like not that the other horror directors of his time weren't as intelligent so I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that but him coming from this very collegiate background and he's so well read as a person a couple years ago my friend got me um a book of of interviews with Wes Craven and it was just he, and it was different a collection of different interviews throughout his career and lifetime mm-hmm. talking about, you know, his different movements in film. And he and my friend Michael brought up this point, too, when we were talking about Scream on his podcast, that he has really shifted the genre in three decades consecutively, like coming in with Last House on the Left in the 70s 
completely changing what it meant to make like a grindhouse grit film and then coming in with Freddy Krueger at the height of the slasher subgenre in the 80s where you had a killer who spoke, who didn't wear a mask and was witty and was ruthless and then how, you know, Freddy kind of evolved and then coming in the 90s with I with Scream in 96 but ultimately with a new nightmare laying the groundwork for what Scream would be mm-hmm. is just just an incredible track record. And then he followed that up in the aughts with like Red Eye and, and those other movies. Like he, his canon of films is just incredible. It's crazy. And yeah. not to mention, you know, Scream completely revamped what yeah. many consider a dying genre or just the 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 way that horror films were viewed um, after the, the golden age, you know, in the 80s. Yes. People weren't super into it. I mean, of course, horror fans were still into horror movies, yeah. but yeah. we weren't it wasn't the same boom that we had before. Um, and also there was just in the 90s, this massive social zeitgeist around how violence in horror movies and you know being goth and listening to metal and witchcraft mm-hmm. was like a direct cause of ill intentions like yeah i think like i don't know i think about like the west memphis three case and how Dam- damien eccles was one of like who's one of the teens that was like wrongfully accused of murder his like interest in like satanism and metal music and horror were like potentially real like incriminating motives yeah. um in this small town and i think that that really reflects sort of the time and how you know like the 80s horror movie boom affected the real world in this real way and i think that that i mean obviously being a horror fan was not looked upon as so so greatly um, throughout history especially up until that point but scream completely revamped that and it took the horror horror subgenre and of like slasher films and stalking films and it redefined um you know this formulaic structure and it like crafted this piece of metafiction that calls attention to the cliches and tropes of your typical slasher film in a way we hadn't seen before. It then yeah. completely subverts them. I mean, there's so many tropes that were subverted in this film that hadn't been done before, you know, like having two killers, breaking the, you know, the rules that, you know, we see Randy talk about. Yeah. You know, the, even the like the virgin final girl trope. Yeah, absolutely. All of that. I- and I'm pretty sure when I wrote my blog post about Scream uh, two summers ago, I think I titled it Breaking All the Rules. <laughs> and that's perfectly fitting. That's so, so fitting. Yeah. And and it's so relevant to this day. I mean, I don't think people are tired of Scream whatsoever. I watched it no. and it still felt fresh to me. It does. And I one of the things, so I did have the fortunate pleasure of sitting down with Scream 1's costume designer, Cynthia Bergstrom. Um, when I was writing my post, because I did this whole in-depth look about masks and about this idea of disguising, or not disguising yourself, but using masks as a catalyst of horror films and like the history of masks. Um, And one of the things that she said to me was that Wes Craven really wanted the first movie to feel timeless. And And I do think it has that quality. I mean, you do get some of these oversized sweaters that the men are wearing you know you have that great skirt that tatum is wearing with the tie-dye on it because we had this 60s like atomic age revival in the 90s Mm -hmm. where it was like semi mid-century but like early 60s i just always think of like smash mouth and like movies like night at the roxbury where Mm -hmm. there's this like weird 60s revival that came up in the late 90s but it but to me it still doesn't feel dated it still feels new and it there's like there's no frosted tips there's no like Mm -hmm. very quintessentially 90s things in there 
I'm, and there are, but they're very subverted and it's very much a timeless look. Mm-hmm. I would, yeah, I would totally agree. I think that the, the color palette of the film in general is relatively muted, especially when it comes to, um, one, you, you're trying to make these characters feel relatable, which I'm sure you know more about um, from talking to Cynthia directly. But when I was reading about, um, I was reading like every, you know, interview that Cynthia has ever done because I was <laughs> fascinated. I was like, oh my God. Uh, just and, and I'm so happy that she's been so vocal about her process. But you know, I know that she wanted to make these characters feel relatable, also as a guise to you know, can you like who's the killer? You don't know. They're all right. like, kind of relatable and neutral in a way. You know, so even from like principal cast down to you know like BG, everyone was pretty. You know, lots of beige, lots of blues, yeah, neutrals, basics. Um, really different to like kind of fashion teen films at the time like yes. clueless it was not very mona may but i will say that you know like i think that the, the mona mayification of scream was maybe <laughs> like tatum and, and gail kind of dipping their their toes yes. into being a little fashionable and, and fun yeah and so that's you know it's kind of it's kind of fun to see that and see where they where they took it a little further and where they were more subdued and why yeah. because it's all feels very intentional um which i think is really cool yeah um i would love to get into just kind of like set the tone with a little history about the ghost face mask because that yes. is infamous it, is, it has a yeah. really fun backstory yes and i have some more backstory from cynthia <laughs> oh my goodness the, se- the secret <laughs> scoop of this mask um from what from what i know it was originally a mask that was developed for novelty stores, right? During like yes. Halloween and like early 90s uh, yeah. by Fun World. And I think it was known as the, well, it was, it, it was, the, the series was Fantastic Faces. The mask itself was known as the Peanut-Eyed Ghost, which is very funny. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, initially Wes Craven um, asked for a white ripstock nylon killer. But so if you don't know what nylon is, think of like World War II parachutes or just parachutes in general. It's this really durable fabric. But then anytime, I mean, we talk about this all the time for continuity's sake. Anytime you get blood on anything, there there's going to be so much inconsistency with where the blood was going to land. Mm-hmm. So and 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 kudos for Wes Craven for having such a knowledge of fabric that he knew the specific kind of fabric that he wants. Most directors like know about a texture you know that they want to achieve but knowing down to the the fabric I think I mean that's just another notch in his hat as as the person that he is (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah so it was supposed to be a white costume originally which is crazy because I mean I honestly can't even imagine it yeah um (laughs) which is so cool yeah so and then I so I have a quote by Cynthia that says um by using white as the look of ghost face keeping the continuity from take to take of blood splatters rips and tears was hard to accomplish not to mention how dirty it would get just running around to perform the stunts Mm -hmm. so that I mean that makes total sense and also I know that she already spent quite a deal of time and we can get into like the you know the importance of like like why certain pieces matter maybe more than other pieces but I know that she spent a ton of time getting Billy's white t-shirt right and like mm. looked through a bunch of t-shirts and blah, blah blah and you know again it's like white is going to show that continuity yes. more than anything and 
honestly probably getting the continuity of that white t-shirt right and yeah you know, from the hero to all of the dupes yeah. probably was already a lot of white to handle even though it seems so simple it might yeah. have taken up a lot of time you know making sure that that moment for that reveal was mm-hmm. right well and also for our listeners too who like might not be familiar so think like a, a white t-shirt like that is cotton think about you know when you were a kid and you would tie-dye a t-shirt an organic material is going to absorb something however which way that it's going to do it because it's organic so when it absorbs it into the fibers, you don't know how far it's going to spread, how wide it's going to spread, mm-hmm. what like the trajectory of like the shape of the spread. So you have to be very specific. So when you're using white in the way that she did and to the degree, like Emma was mm-hmm. saying, that like you have to get it perfect and you have to know what you're doing <laughs> to make yeah, it work. <laughs> absolutely. Cotton is really difficult with yes. fake blood. Um, yes. It's like a white cotton t-shirt. <laughs> it sounds... It, it it's really really hard, especially when you know that that is going to be part of such an iconic moment in a mm-hmm. film. You are yeah, you are talking to the special effects department, figuring out exactly what kind of blood is happening. You mm-hmm. probably ideally would have like a you know like an Adrian Dyer to to help mm-hmm. with that and help with the you know the blood and you know is there going to be like extra splatter? Like it's a whole thing. It, it yeah. takes a lot of collaboration to get that right, even though it's just like a white T shirt with blood yeah. on it. So. Yeah. One could imagine that a completely white, you know, robe would <laughs> with with multiple kills and multiple moments. Yeah. Um would be kind of hard to keep track of. Not to say that, you know, having like a black hooded robe is is too much easier because, you know, it's in everything, but you don't see a lot of blood or any blood really on the ghost face killer. Mm-hmm. at all yeah and i think that having that also not to mention the black wasn't just black it had this really interesting it um, like glint glint of like a knife like hitting a knife and and i think that that was something that really sold um west craven was, was yes. that the yeah the texture actually looked really cool mm-hmm. um and it wasn't just flat black yeah so um she recalled that her and wes and their dp were having lunch and Next door was a fabric store, and um, what really caught the eye was the metallic threading woven into this black fabric, um, and that's what really th- like kind of sold Wes Craven to the fabric. And if you notice, in the second one, because it's a different costume designer for each film, they couldn't find the original fabric from the first one, so Ghostface does not have the metallic sheen from the first one. I think it does come back in the third one. It definitely comes back into the fourth one, I noticed, and it's in the new one. That Ghostface now still has the metallic in it, but the second one does not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so cool. But I, uh, I love the metallic. I think it, it it's lit really well. I think yes. it's done really well. And yeah, I'm I'm really happy that that is what they went with because now it also makes the mask stand out so much more. It does. And um, I know the mask was actually I think originally Wes Craven thought he found the mask and then was like actually my producer, uh, Marion Madalena found it. And also, just quick shout out to Marion Madalena. I've never, I don't really hear a lot about her, but she has been Wes Craven's co-producer for years, had, had massive influence on his work. And I believe they have, like, they actually had, like, a production company called Craven Madalena Films. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, she's really cool. And the more I was reading about 
kind of the ins and outs of, of Scream and the behind the scenes, her influence came up a lot. Like, oh, actually, you know, like Marion decided this and you yeah. know, after like we, you know, it was a lot of like Marion and and Cynthia would would seemingly, you know, present things to to Wes Craven or they would they would agree on things maybe more and then yeah. convince Wes Craven. He'd be like, actually, yes, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so just quick shout out to her. Very cool. Em, em and I talk about this all the time too about, you know, it takes a village to make these films. And, mm-hmm. and like we were saying in our Hitchcock episode where you have the name and we have these art tours of film, but really behind all of these powerful men are a bunch of women that actually mm-hmm. do know what they're doing and know their shit like Alma Rebel. <laughs> Absolutely. There's there's <laughs> always a woman behind the scenes that's, that's yeah. you know, making massive waves of influence and yeah. um so now we, let's get some uh, women art tours cuz yes. I really I want that to happen so badly. Absolutely. <laughs> they're they're coming. They're coming. It's going to be a, a fleet. I feel like Chloe um Chloe Zhao. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. she's going to become an she's art pretty, tour. She's pretty yeah. damn cool. Yeah. I'm really excited to see the uh, the future of Chloe Zhao for sure. Yeah. Isn't she doing like a Western sci-fi? Is that her? I think I think so. That- and I think she's doing – is it a Marvel movie? Is she doing one of the next Marvel movies? Yes. I think I heard, yeah. Yes. Or yeah. did? One of them, yeah. I don't keep up with Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I do want to keep up with Chloe Zhao. Yeah. Very cool. Um, She did Eternals, I believe. The, the oh, latest. she did. Okay. Did Eternals and then, of course, Nomadland. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Women are women are coming. We're coming. We're, we're, yeah. We've all we're always here. <laughs> we're, we've always been here. We've always been here. But this is how the men got on this earth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the mask, super yeah. interesting. That Marion found it, and she found it while inside of a house during a location scout. Oh, um, and brought it to the attention of Craven, and then he kind of set about trying to obtain the rights to use it because it was already a mask that existed right um and so the license the licensing director of fun world what was his name rj torbert mm-hmm. in 1996 he was given the task of naming the mask prior to its film's debut deciding on Ghostface with the blessing of the fun world owners okay the Ghostface design and title are you know owned by fun world yeah that's sort of where it started and it took a while <laughs> to get the actual rights to the mask, but it eventually worked out. And there was a few iterations of, of the mask as well. I believe that there were two in the first one. Um, one, the the one that was made by, there was one that was made by K, KNB Effects. And it was basically their task to produce a mask specifically for the film based on the film world design. Mm. And ultimately, they didn't like the final result, but they did actually use that in the Casey Becker scene. And I believe the scene of um, the principal being murdered. Okay. So those two scenes didn't have that custom mask by KMB. Mm. And the, the the difference is it's so funny. It's They're so like minuscule. I mean, you don't notice it, but especially because, I mean, you have a close-up of the mask or relatively close-up of the mask in that Casey Becker scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously they filmed those two scenes before the rest of the film. And then they finally actually got the rights to use the ghost face mask from fun world and then they were able to use the original design that they wanted but originally they had to just kind of like they were approved to make one similar right and then they didn't like it and then they actually got the approval to use the real one and then it was fine and then they used the real one for the rest of the film but yeah they had i love that that it was just kind of found because as far as like a character choice costuming character choice like how accessible that mask 
actually was is like really is really cool because Billy and Stu would just go into a store and buy a mask and think, oh, okay, cool. Like we're just going to use this. So like the accessibility of it in the real world and in the world of Woodsboro is is a really cool, like it resonates really well. Um, I would love to sort of know, I know we've talked about this kind of like throughout the podcast, we touched on it. We talked about mm-hmm. it a lot in our first episode, but I know that your piece on you know, mask and masking, you know, your true identity was also specifically in regards to your piece on Scream. So I would love to hear kind of more about that in the context of Ghostface. Yeah. Masking. I mean, we've been doing this for millennia. Um, Storytellers in indigenous tribes, Japanese and Italian theater have been doing masks and having these stock characters. So this is not a new concept in storytelling. I'm so fascinated with disguise, with masking ourselves and like how it's used in the art of horror because basically it dehumanizes a human face, even if the the face that we're looking at on the mask is a human face. Like, um, you know, like those weird rubber masks of like Ronald Reagan and like presidents from the 80s. You know, we, we don't recognize them as actual faces, but our brains are programmed to look for faces in a lot of things. In the guise of Scream, where you have something that's not humanized, there it's not gendered in any way. And I think that's why Scream... The whole franchise is the the franchise as a whole. I think works so well is the fact that like the killer can be anyone, any mm-hmm. one person. That it's just this. I really I I I know his name is Ghostface, but like now I want to call him Peanut Eyes. <laughs> Peanut Eyed Killer. Peanut Eyed Killer. I think it's fascinating that you know the idea the idea of sort of cloaking who you really are yeah i think is is always been kind of fascinating to me just the idea that like you're you know like who like you're the darkest side of you no one can really see but you know like you're willing to um hide behind this you know anonymous guys to to act out that dark side yeah um, and whatever that dark side is and it could be anyone's dark side it's oh, almost absolutely. like you know representative of something uh of something repressed usually and usually in the context of horror films yeah uh, it, it is that there is like trauma there. Mm-hmm. there there's like it's repressed trauma that's sort of what you're seeing otherwise you are really if you think about it you're hiding behind your unmasked self you know right. like your unmasked self is not acting out like that so with Ghostface, you know like billy and stew aren't acting like killers i mean yes i think that you can you can tell and then it subverts you and then you think it's not and then tries to convince you that it is them again and then you don't think it is then it is but but you know in in the world they're not no one's suspecting them to be a killer except that one time (laughs) well and i think that's why the image of a ghost is so like works so well for this film even even if they found it by chance the fact that like if you believe or in like the supernatural thing of this idea that ghosts are always around us or if you have any religious ties of like the mm-hmm. afterlife you know the saying that like the ones that we've lost never truly leave us so this idea that they're always there and bill and stew are always there with us but we don't see them for who they are until they put on the ghost face mask until they don the costume and then eventually you know get demasked at the end and are found out but I think that that's like a really beautiful image mm-hmm. using like ghosts in that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I think that, you know, ghosts and, and, and things that, that haunt us are, you know, one of my favorite ways that, you know, the paranormal is, is, is utilized in film is kind of this motif to to showcase sort of what's really following you around, you know, what are you not dealing yeah. with? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I think that's really cool. Yeah. And then when we leave the horror genre and then we realize that humans are actually so much worse than the supernatural and the boogeyman and stuff. And it, it's yeah. very fitting to how meta this movie is and how self-aware this movie is of like, no man, quote unquote, man is, is actually the scariest beast of all. Yeah. Toxic yeah. masculinity in this way is Absolutely. the scariest beast of all. So, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> and speaking of of gender and that kind of thing, like in the 90s and you see this, you know, in most of the films at this point, everything was pretty, you know, gendered. <laughs> and, yeah. and and there was there was a lot of sticking to the binary in yeah. the 90s. We talked a little bit about this in our gender identity episode where the the 90s and like the early 2000s were kind of this like really yikes period of, you know, maybe even more so with like the scary movie franchise. Yeah. Yes, women and, you know, cis women at that were generally used as kind of devices. Yes, I think Sydney subverted a lot of tropes, but ultimately, yes, women were killed most of the time yeah in 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 these films especially in the the early days and there wasn't really luckily a lot of you know homophobic jokes or we didn't get a lot of racist jokes so that was a nice change yeah Um, although there wasn't a lot of diversity whatsoever um and that's definitely something we have to acknowledge you know when it comes to 100 yeah you know films that are made in the 90s really films made made at any point um but you know this was a very interesting period to be um they were they were subverting tropes and they were subverting a a genre um and a a subgenre and creating this this new meta metaverse so to Mm -hmm. speak yeah um but at the same time, there are a lot of ways that Scream um, maintained the status quo of films just because of uh, where films and progress was at the time. So that's that's interesting. Scream kicks off with a character that is very short-lived but has become one of the most probably iconic costumes yeah. from the franchise. And probably maybe because it seems so relatable and so something that you could find in your closet to do so it's actually a relatively easy costume to do it is yeah miss casey becker miss casey becker we have the casey (laughs) becker sequence yeah Um, actually when i saw scream 5 one of when i was coming out of the theater there was a guy dressed like casey becker coming out of the theater (laughs) it was really cute cute. oh my god i'm absolutely obsessed so this i always thought that you know so casey becker has neutral beige knit you know little blonde bob Lil J Crew. Mm-hmm. I think she has just kind of like looks like light denim or some kind of like loose pant. It was. I think they were they were lavender, lavender. Okay, pants, which I think were also J Crew. They're really yeah. They were like I, I remember seeing her running in the dark, and I was like I can't place yeah. if that's like what material that is. Um, but she had a very oh, sorry. like pants were lavender pants were Fred Siegel, which was like okay. the hottest jean bar in los angeles in the 90s like Mm -hmm. if you got pants from fred siegel you were in the in crowd and then the sweater was j crew amazing yeah Yeah, fred siegel was really the moment i remember 
um, even in you know the early 2000s in Legally Blonde, they yeah. talk about Fred Siegel. And I was like, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading that Cynthia wanted Casey specifically mm-hmm. to feel, and I think this is an overarching theme in the design of uh, the whole film that she that she did, but wanted Casey yeah. to feel relatable. She wasn't like the yeah. popular girl. She wasn't like this person. She didn't look like a trope. She just, she could have been anyone. She was just right. at home being cozy, you know, like waiting for her boyfriend to come over, you know? Yeah. She, she kind of could have been anyone. Of, although I will say, and I don't know if this was direct in any way, but her sweater did give me like callback to Pam Voorhees vibes. <laughs> Just because I was like, mm, yes, a sweater, um, like a beige sweater. Yeah, I always think of um, her sweaters like because so because she wanted to keep her sweet and innocent and still attractive. It and like the texture of it reminds me of these teens were lambs to slaughter. They were being they were lambs being led to slaughter by Billy mm-hmm. and Stu by these killers. And mm-hmm. and and it, she does her sweater looks like lambs wool. And it probably if it was J Crew, it probably was wool. Yeah, um, and it probably was lamb. So yeah. Well, I like that analysis. That's that is totally accurate. Also, it just kind of looks like I don't know. I something I noted was like the way she like kind of like pulls her sweater over her hand. Like it was just very mm-hmm. like cozy and felt very yeah. relatable, and it wasn't flashy. And you know, it's it, in the same way that I think the ghost face identity was this sort of cloak. I think her her kind of neutral outfit. Yeah, and I think this is true for a lot of the characters, but specifically for the role of Casey Becker, was this cloak of neutrality, mm-hmm. um, like an "it could be you" kind of thing. Yeah, um, and it could be anybody, and that's sort of what that felt like to me. Yeah, um, and when we see her running through her yard when she's trying to escape Ghostface, and Ghostface is like directly behind her, and she's you know directly in front of him, and we get mm-hmm. that white sweater or cream sweater against that like black cloak. That is such a contrast of like, I mean, color theory 101 of like good versus evil, quote unquote, mm-hmm. of like black and white. Yeah, absolutely. Her dark and light. Super light. Mm-hmm. And actually, I mean, the palette of the film in general, I would say was fairly light and probably, yeah. you know, I noticed a lot of white and, you know, <laughs> probably against the, the, the DP's desires to have a lot of white because that could be hard to light. Yeah and shoot but it worked really well to see all these kind of like light colors and kind of strung throughout but I think Casey really set the tone and is a great summary of how Cynthia costumed this film yeah and I mean these kids are from Northern California they're in an upper middle class community and town so like whether you could see the label or not you know on the clothing it, it comes across that these kids are they come from money. They or not not like you know filthy rich or anything, but like you know they have money. They have protection. There's this level of untouchability that all of these kids have about them, and then all of a sudden they become touched because these killers start ravaging through the you know through yeah. their their high school class. And and I think that also shows a lot about Stu and Bill's characters. This idea of of being untouchable that they think that they are holier than that that they are untouchable they could be performing these heinous crimes on their classmates yeah and don't think that they're gonna get caught because they've got the voice protector they've got the mask you know like mm-hmm. it's when, so childish it's funny it is it, yeah it really shows that they're these are teens like yeah, they're very exactly teens that planned this yeah although i will say every time i watch any screen movie and somebody falls and the killer is right on top of them i'm always like just just reach up and grab, grab the mask. <laughs> just, just grab the, the mask. mask. Yeah, just grab it. It's like right there. It's it's so close. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is such a good point. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I did notice, though, um, throughout the film, we do get variations of this cream sweater on various characters. Thank and, you and for it, pointing this out because yeah. I was also thinking about this. So it's it's very much like all of the students are like these lambs in a pen being mm-hmm. led to slaughter, which, mm-hmm. you know, Emma and I don't roll with because we're both vegan. <laughs> yeah, we're not slaughtering lambs out here. No. Not but today. But there's like a loss of innocence. There's a loss of youth that happens throughout the course of this movie through mm-hmm. these heinous tragedies. And one that Sydney is already bearing the burden of because a year prior to this, she's lost her mother horrifically she's, to rape and murder. She has so much trauma. She has so oh my much trauma. I yeah. can't even process it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, about the sweaters um, and just the color palette in general. I liked that this kind of had a – the film was kind of like a day and then – went shifted to night and so the yeah. costume shifted with that which also shifted with the tone of the film and you know where things were headed yeah but i noticed in the the scene where we meet outside we meet billy and Stu and the whole gang kind of like yeah. for the first time at school oh right around um, the fountain yeah yeah billy and sue were both wearing extremely similar beige sweaters to casey's Stu's mm-hmm. particularly was extremely extremely similar to the point where i thought yeah. it was the same one mm-hmm. they both had like they both have the beige sweater and i don't know if that was intentional but no one else had the beige sweater within their crew like randy had right. his like green getup, right which, right which was really funny and adorable and had like the um the oh my gosh what are those shoes called the green he had these big green shoes there's like a name for them in the 90s. They're really popular. Not oh creepers. Were they creepers? Oh, I don't know. They, were, they weren't etnies, were they? They were like sneakers? They were like, <laughs> I don't know what they were called. Anyways, he had big green shoes, <laughs> um, which is funny because Randy just wore like green a ton throughout this film. But yeah. Billy and Stu, I feel like it was maybe intentional that they were both wearing really similar sweaters to Casey. Yeah. Um, well, it's very disarming too. It is. You don't even recognize the connection. Right, right. That like they have the same texture as her sweater. So it's like, oh, they can't be the killers because they're, they're also like innocent. Her. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny. You you connect it in a different way than mm-hmm. you do at the end. Yeah. Um, at that point. But before we meet them, we meet Sydney, yeah. who wakes up in this baby-like, floral, nighty, very classic final yeah. girl, I would say. Yeah. Very It's baby original, doll, too. It's, pure. like, shorter. It's got the rosebuds on it. It's mm-hmm. got the, like, little lace trims on it, the little mm-hmm. buttons. Yeah. Billy even comments on it and is like, do you sleep in that? Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a, a funny, I don't know how super intentional it was, but uh, it feels intentional given how meta this film is yeah. that to kind of point out like how almost absurdly innocent and dated all these these final girls dress like every every time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you can even draw the connection that he, he brings up the exorcist uh-huh. and she, Reagan is wearing... In that final scene, mm-hmm. she wears, you know, pajamas most of the movie. But in that final scene, she's wearing that blue rose-petaled nightgown. With, I mean, it's long sleeve, but it's got the eyelet trim. And it's very similar to Sydney's. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is super similar. Um, and you also see, like, the – a little bit later when you see her um, with Tatum. And, you know, we can obviously chat about Tatum's fashion. Oh, yeah. But um, when you see them – together when she is having a sleepover with Tatum. Mm-hmm. Tatum's wearing like what I think one would consider a more 
classic like teen pajamas it's like a little cloud themed yeah. pj set looks you know looks youthful but it doesn't look like an actual like toddler outfit no she's like a cute teen <laughs> she's got her hair in braids yeah it like makes that's yeah. that's the teen of you know 96 yeah. like that makes more sense to me but you can see that stark difference and in general you can see the stark difference in their style um, well yeah even just putting tatum in a pants set Sydney, even though she's not wearing pajamas in that scene, she's just wearing an oversized pink t-shirt. She kind of looks like Boo before Monsters, Inc. She does. She looks like a child. She does. She does. But, like, it leaves her vulnerable because Mm -hmm. she's wearing a nightgown. She is even more exposed to whatever is going to happen because she's not wearing pants. And pants, I mean, they've always been kind of – you know, traditionally more masculine, but there's a la- there's a layer of protection that comes with wearing pants because you are fully covered mm-hmm. as a as a female, and and like you know you're not exposed vulnerably. It's gonna if you get attacked, it's going to take some work to try to you know assault you in that way. Mm-hmm. And there's a level of vulnerability to wearing a nightgown in both situations where she's just been like frazzled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and Sydney's costuming i think in this film in general um again really is that super kind of like neutrality i know that a lot of like especially that first outfit that she wears to school so you have like the blue t-shirt and Mm -hmm. the the jeans and later she puts on that like gray sweatshirt yeah she's got a lot of gray blue color palettes throughout the film you could see that she has a lot of um kind of like loose masculine ambiguous sort of uh silhouettes and i think that that is maybe to also keep you Mm-hmm. guessing as far like is she ghost face like it's supposed to kind of obscure it a little bit yeah so cynthia um wanted to keep the shapes on sydney slightly oversized and concealing because of the trauma that sydney had gone through that she's mm. going to kind of shut herself out from the world she's going to cover herself up in the world it makes sense um, so using those shapes it like creates like this this layer of protection for sydney because she is so vulnerable and we see that through a lot of different Horror movies and non-horror movies alike that when you want to conceal a character, you want a character to feel protected in a way in, or in a space where they might not be like safely protected. You you do that. You layer them or you bulk them up so that they are covered. And I mean, people do it in real life. I mean, I, you know, I was a summer camp counselor for years and I would see like the, you know, teenage girls when they start to come into their own bodies and, and they're feeling really self-conscious, they tend to wear more, you know, baggier t-shirts and, and baggier sweatshirts and different things like that to kind of make sense of what's happening, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely hormonally. Yeah. And to kind of take some agency because now they're being looked at differently. And, yeah, and a well, lot of – like straight high school boys can be so – vicious yeah um oh yeah and make you feel so uncomfortable and you're also comparing yourself to other yes. people and it's it's just it's a rough time regardless yeah. and then on top <laughs> of like enduring such horrifying trauma i think it makes complete sense for city's character to kind of cover up you also see that in general you know i'll bite the reasons that you know she's wearing these baggier clothes she does kind of give off the tomboy like final yeah. girl thing also maybe like ambiguous like sexuality vibes from hmm. from her costumes maybe even more so in the uh, scream too mm-hmm. but um you know compared to Tatum who is the you know she's the the sexually active right. loud trope 
you know, that is di- supposed to be this direct sort of uh, contrast to Sydney's, you know, the virginal final girl thing that she does some right. later. But Tatum's costuming is is much different. She is wearing a ton of bright colors, um, kind of keeping along this like yellowy green kind of color scheme um, most of the time, um, which we also see again randy and also gail yes in a lot of like green kind of on the spectrum of green um which i think is really interesting because they're kind of they're they're loud characters i would say those are like kind of the loudest characters but they also are sort of the outsiders of the core group at the time of the film yeah i know that cynthia drew a lot of color inspiration from the edward munch painting the the scream Mm -hmm. and then for other characters she really looked at you know monet and van gogh and these like very uh pastel-y very fluid brushstroke impressionist painting patterns which i think Mm -hmm. is really nice because this is is, i mean these movies are kind of like paintings in a way yeah i think it's so cool though to draw inspiration from the scream and from paintings in general i think yeah because color palettes are so keyed in when you're looking Mm -hmm. at a painting yeah i think it makes total sense to draw from that and it's also just like a fun little i don't know easter egg it is um, yeah so deep it's so deeply rooted that like if you didn't know you wouldn't know yeah um Mm -hmm. Or if you like somehow did make the connection, you know, you saw the colors, but um, I think that is so cool. Yeah. And and I also know that she spent probably the most time with Rose McGowan shopping and they like went shopping together for Tatum's mm. look and that Rose had a ton of input compared to the other actors on Tatum's look and that I think originally Cynthia kind of wanted Tatum to pull back a little bit from mm-hmm. where Rose wanted to go with the character and that Rose wanted it to be a little more LA and it was wasn't quite what um, Wes Craven wanted, but that eventually they went like when they went shopping together, and they, they kind of came to a compromise. Um, mm. and like like the white Doc Martin boots, like that was a compromise. Yeah, um, that they made. Um, but she was definitely like like I had mentioned before, like where you see the fashion come through. It's like you see Rose McGowan's like tight sweater, the patterned skirts, like the zebra print purse that I love. Um, you even see animal print as well um, on Gale, so you can kind of. That was definitely a thing, like for fashionable oh, yeah. characters to have, like a little bit of animal print at the time. Yeah, um, still is. I think that's almost timeless. But uh, it's funny because I think that knowing me, and knowing also that I like loved Rose McGowan growing up, <laughs> and like mm-hmm. watched every Rose McGowan film, I should like Tatum's outfits the most, but I don't, and I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what I think it but what's funny is that I think it's because it does feel like a teen girl experimenting with outfits. It does. Like kind of putting yeah. stuff together. I think in my brain I'm like, oh maybe you know, if if I were Tatum, I'd wear, you know, I'd wear it with this or something like that. But when you do look at it and I think this kind of made me like the costumes on Tatum more than I did on, you know, with just like face value, is that kind of aspect of like she's experimenting, she's a teen, she's kind of like throwing pieces together and finding herself a little bit she's very headstrong but I don't think that she is settled in herself yet you know what I mean yeah and she's so opposite from her brother Dewey who is you know a police officer and he's very by the book and he Mm -hmm. wears really just the one I mean he does kind of he I don't does he wear any street clothes in the first one? I know he does in the sequels, but he does even in the sequel. Even yeah, the sequel, though, it was like it, it's still the same color palette <laughs> of like khaki brown and a little bit of green. You know, right. like his so jacket like, in the second one was almost could have been just his police. Yeah, uniform. it was like it was like a dad bomber jacket yes. that you would find on like Very Dennis Quaid dad. or Liam Neeson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it was just tan. Yeah. <laughs> 
which is so funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, totally. I mean, the, there is such a stark difference in knowing her brother. You can kind of get insight into sort of her yeah. her upbringing. And, and I have a feeling that maybe she's encouraged to be this kind of specific kind of person. And she's tried to subvert that in her own life. Yeah. And then, of course, you get – I'm almost certain, and maybe this is because I recently – Rewatch for the millionth time the Sex and the City episode where Samantha like brings fake nipples to like a club, but I do believe Rose McGowan is wearing fake nipples in her <laughs> scene where she dies. Oh my god! And I think it wasn't. I think they wanted like they want that was part of the costume. I fully believe this that they were like Rose McGowan needs to have massive like hard nipples in this scene. I believe. I know nothing about that. <laughs> <laughs> I I that is I will die on this hill. Rose McGowan. Okay had fake nipples. That's all I have to say on that. But I think it's I think it is because they are trying to drive a home that Tatum mm-hmm. is the the sexually active yeah. character. And that, you know, she is unfortunately going to die. Yeah. Um which which suck and I and I almost wanted them to subvert that more. <laughs> subvert that trope more yeah. where but but it, you know, I think again, it was the mid nineties. It was, and I, I don't think they did it in a harming way. I think when Scream no, does no. tropes, they never do them in a harming way. They're always in a tongue-in-cheek way, and they're kind of putting them on displays, the ridiculousness of these tropes in these horror movies. Yeah. And that's why it works in these films. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and I do think that they – Tatum is, is respected in the film. I do think Tatum is she respected is. in the film. Um, yeah. I don't have a massive, you know, problem with how our – female characters are shown in, in the scream films in in general i think no, that it is so strong it compare yeah comparatively especially to other like you know parody films like or you know like meta horror films i think that you could take you know anti-women jokes really far but there really weren't any no um it was they were i think they respected their female yeah characters. i think though in wes craven's films he never crosses that line racially yeah. or you know you know gender wise because i know one of the reasons in a nightmare on elm street why nancy is so strong was because one of wes's daughters was like you're not gonna make her fall down in this film right because, like, I don't want to see that. And he was, like and, – and and I remember reading that he was just kind of, like – Like, it clicked. Like, I have daughters, and I have to show them proper representation because I have that power to, to properly represent women in horror. And he's Absolutely. consistently done that in all of his films. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I, I, and I love that. I love that about him. And Yeah. I think I think you can see that. And I think this was a really – like, Scream was really the building blocks of sh- how the genre – has shifted. Yeah. It it did draw attention to previously harmful tropes. Yeah. Or, or tropes oh, yeah. that were used in harmful ways. Yeah. Um, and and I think pointing that out is good. Um, yeah. It's a good thing and I think it has affected the genre um, in a positive way. Yeah. And I think that's why so many women and, and gender non-binary people relate so much to these films. I mean, I – walked out of the theater to the fifth one crying because I like because uh, 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 I was so happy because I was like wow I'm so proud to be a woman and not and to be a woman in horror but just like seeing so many strong females on screen like it feels so good to know that like and I'm not spoiling Scream 5 or anything but I'm just saying like it just feels so good at the end of these Scream films to know that like we are not going to perish and we are going to triumph and we are going to kick ass and mm-hmm. and that makes me as a woman feel really good. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of 
strong females. Gail arriving oh. in her acid yellow Hell suit. Yeah. Her, her Versace, acid green. Her Versace, her Versace chartreuse suit. That uh, Cynthia actually didn't want in the film. And and That's kind so of glad. Funny. Yeah, she was saying that um she was kind of glad that she didn't have time to change it. Like they wanted to, mm-hmm. but and it, and it made the cut. But yeah. I, I think it's so cool because it I mean, when you see that, like, the wide of the school, yeah. you see her immediately. Yes. And the other, like, newscasters, people doing interviews, like, they yes. aren't wearing that at all. <laughs> they're, they're wearing, like, pale blues and, and, and browns and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Gail know that, knows she is bigger than Woodsboro, that she has mm-hmm. strong ambition and she – and you know what? I like that in a character because I think far too often – women apologize for for wanting more out of their careers and wanting what they want and gail has never apologized throughout the entire series and i mean Mm -hmm. it's hurt her relationship with dewey in some areas but like never she has never apologized for who she was and i love that so much yeah yeah absolutely it's it's bold it is it is and coming back to the paintings if you look closely at her cameraman's top story jacket it's the color gradient of the munch painting Oh my gosh, seriously? Yeah. I love that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I think Gail's a badass character. I also yeah. noticed um, the other day that there is a acid green suit in the spring 2022 Versace lineup that is literally almost exactly, it's it's a, it's a maybe a little bit more modernized, of course, but it's almost an exact take on the Versace suit that she wore. And I think that that is very cool and very fun that that is coming out at the same time as Scream 5. Gail, we see in this acid green suit, yeah. arriving on the scene, um, standing out immediately, just immediately a star. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, did Cynthia mention like what she wanted originally for Gail? Um, I'm trying to think. So I don't have in my notes here that she said what she wanted. I think I think what, what she was just afraid of was that it was just such a bold color. And she wanted Gail to be bold and bright and just really like to steal the the scene, you know, Mm -hmm. with her look because that's who Gail is as a person. Um, But I I think the like the brightness of the chartreuse because that's a Mm -hmm. very harsh color. And it's not at all in the color palette that we see at the school at all. No. And she's standing against bricks and she's standing against like trees and things that are very muted. And yeah, so I think it was just a lot of like being wary because you don't know how things are also going to show up on film. Mm-hmm. When you put these like bold colors, because this color is the color of a gr- almost the color of a green screen. If mm-hmm. when you use a green, now we use blue screens, but yeah, that's so fun. Yeah. I mean, and Gail, her palette gets a little more demure after that suit. It's funny that suit is so so different from even her own color palette. It is, but um, it is very small town woman thinking that she is a city person and thinking that this is what city people wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it yeah. works exactly. No, it totally works. Um, and I mean, Gail had some really high fashion pieces later on in the film. I know that she wears like a Moschino suit. Mm-hmm. And I read that there actually was some crossover where her and Mona May mm-hmm. were actually shopping for movies at the same time. Um, she was sho- Cynthia was shopping for Scream. Mona May was shopping for Romy and Michelle. And love that movie. At, so fun. They were at Neiman Marcus and they both looked at the Moschino like mm-hmm. jacket 
and they both got it for the film, like both of their films. So that I jacket that. is in both films, um, except that Mona May just got the jacket and styled it differently. And then Cynthia kept it as the suit, like the red suit. Now uh, I have to rewatch it because, oh, wait, is that Romy's? Is that Romy's jacket? It's, yeah, it's, it's Lisa Kudrow, which is really funny. Oh, it's Michelle's jacket. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa Kudrow wears it, which is funny because they were on Friends at the same yeah, time. So, <laughs> and they wore the same jacket, but it was a different jacket. That. So that's yeah. a fun little Gale Lil Gale trivia. Lil Gale would totally be friends with Romy and Michelle. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I believe they're in the same universe. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, Gale, again, you know, when she does wear that red, she's wearing like a little cheetah print headband, like some of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has that like metallic bronzy trench coat, which I thought was really interesting. It yes. does feel a little dated. Like that jacket feels dated to me. Some pieces don't, but that does. Yeah. <laughs> that cropped, shiny, pleathery jacket was very big back then. Totally. We've seen it in Buffy. We've seen it in this costumed by the same designer. But we've seen it in a lot of other like 90s movies and shows. Mm-hmm. There was just a lot of pleather. There was a lot of sheen in the late 90s, early 2000s. I had pleather pants back I then. I want pleather pants now. Let's bring it back. They were they were purple, and I sang them for the talent show, and I sang Miracles Happen from The Princess. Party. I love that for you. I do. <laughs> um, that is actually a really great thing to point out, is that Cynthia Bergstrom, who costumed Scream 96, also costumed a ton of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, she did uh, seasons two through seven i believe she did the rest of the series and so you would imagine that someone who has costumed you know horror media before is thinking about things like how like what colors will showcase blood the most like those are things you think about Mm -hmm. and i know that cynthia brought in a lot of like blues and whites for that reason because it would contrast with the blood so well and i'm like that's someone that's worked in horror before because i think it's very easy to overlook that kind of thing and you have to think about when you're costuming horror, what you want the blood to look like and how Mm -hmm. you want it to show up. Sometimes you want it to be subtle, but other times you want it to really pop. And this was a case where you wanted it to pop. And I think she very intentionally chose colors to elevate that. Yeah. Another color thing I noticed was just as far as color palette in general, as we kind of dissect this whole color palette, because there are are moments like that suit where it's like, that seems like a complete conversion from what the color palette is. Um, but I did, and yet it, but works. it works. It totally works. It works. Um, yeah, I love it. It's one of my favorite costumes from the franchise in general. You know, for that reason, I did notice that um, the scene where Sydney arrives at school again to confront Gail, um, and she's with Tatum. Oh, yes. and Tatum's wearing the um, the ten jersey that people have, you know, speculated is maybe a callback to um, Nightmare on Elm Street. They Tatum, Sydney, and Gail are all wearing red at that point. And I just like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how intentional that was. It felt intentional. Um, It felt like they were, you know, trying to, that Cynthia was trying to coordinate them for a reason, maybe just because it looked good in the shot. Yeah. You know, Tatum had those great red pants with that jersey, which I did read, by the way, that um, Cynthia said that the jersey was actually, like Rose really wanted to wear that jersey. And they showed it to Mm. Wes Craven and Wes Craven was like, yes. And yeah. It's probably possible that Wes Craven knew, like, oh, yes, that jersey is from Nightmare on Elm Street. But whether Rose knew or not or did that on purpose, we don't actually know. So we don't really know if that was a direct callback to that. But it's either, like, a really fun 
accident <laughs> or uh, or a direct callback, which is also fun too. And also there was very direct callbacks to Nightmare on Elm Street when the janitor was dressed like Freddy Krueger. <laughs> they straight up Freddy That was Krueger. just yeah. Freddy. And his and name's, name's Freddy. Freddy. Which was hilarious and I really appreciated yeah. that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I loved all those little Easter eggs in the movies and the the like poking fun at all of the different horror movies and the fact that Randy works for a video store and like mm-hmm. Also, okay, do you do this? I don't know if you do this, but every time I see Jamie Kennedy's face, do you not sing to yourself, circle, circle, dot, dot? Because I do. Do you remember that song? Yes. And yes, I do. And the whole music video was in Legos? As it should be. Jeez. Fucking Jamie Kennedy. Fucking Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really curious about, and this is something that I sort of got me thinking about the use of green in general. Like I mentioned, like we have these characters that wear a ton of green. Randy specifically, though, is like looks like a leprechaun. He's wearing so much green. Yes, I was gonna say that. Like it's, I'm kind of like what, and at this point, you know, we didn't even know how green like the um, the color palette for Stab is, which we see way more of in the second film. But Randy really like beefs it up with some green. I know he's like a loud character, but I'm like, why? And he's the most 90s, I feel like, out of all the men in the film, like the teenage men in the film, mm-hmm. because he's got the layered t-shirt with the open short sleeve button up on top that was really big back then and in the early 2000s mm-hmm. with like the check. We see it in American Pie. We see it in Not Another Teen Movie. We Like we see it in all these movies that like that was the quintessential like late 90s, early aughts yeah absolutely we have like the striped shirts the like khaki pants also i remember the name of the shoes that he has they're called hush puppies and they were very very puppies. yeah in the 90s we had these green hush puppies that was so yeah quintessentially 90s and now they make like business shoes like business casual Mm -hmm. shoes they do not make loud shoes and i almost wonder if you know he's so loud while Billy and Stu are very clearly more demurred in their palette, right? You, you know, your brain is kind of like you can tell that, like you almost notice Randy more than them. And I'm wondering how purposeful yeah. that was. But you know, of course, then if you look back on it, you're like, well, actually, you notice the other two more because of how right. specific, almost how intentionally neutral they were. It's more obvious than like Randy's green right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Just because, you know, he's Randy's like the third guy of the group and he, you know, it's just like, why does he look so different than the other two? Um, I never right. suspected Randy. I don't remember ever suspecting Randy. So I don't know if that. No, I don't think point. I ever did either. Um, but I did notice the amount of green and I don't really know. I don't really have an explanation. Yeah. <laughs> As to why he just really loves he just green. loves green. He's a fun guy who loves, loves green. green. Oh, I'll say I want to circle back to the Easter eggs. For oh a yeah, because um, I have written in my notes that when our principal, who's played by Henry Winkler, dies, um, did you notice the leather jacket hanging up in his coat closet? No. So there's a brown leather jacket hanging up in his coat closet, which is I'm assuming a callback to him playing the fawns. Oh my goodness. That is so cute. I I love him. (laughs) I think he's so fun. And I heard that he is one of the nicest people on the planet. And he just like, if you follow him on Twitter, he's, he's just so cute. Like he posts pictures of his dog, like him going fishing all the time. Like, I just want to meet him. I love that. (laughs) That's so cute. Uh, That's so adorable. I'm yeah. I mean, with this film, the palette is very much, you know, the extras have so much blue and cream and beige and you can see yeah. that our leads do kind of blend in to a degree. Um, so I think that's really interesting. But yeah, what's interesting to me is how actually the jump from 
Sydney and Scream 1 to Scream 2. Mm-hmm. Because Sydney yeah. has, well, I would say a pretty massive stylistic change yeah. in, in mm-hmm. how she appears from, you know, both both of our introductions to Sydney in both of these films is like her in pajamas. Yeah. And her pajamas in the second one are what I feel are very Ripley-esque. Um, they are, and they're so different. It's like a 180. Oh, complete 180. It's form-fitting. It's revealing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, pants. it's pants. It's a top. It's a little tank top. It's gray, uh, which, you mm-hmm. know, gray, that does feel in line with with Sydney, but compared to her other pajamas, which was like very frilly and, and girly and probably mm-hmm. imposed by, <laughs> you know, just like her parents, just like in her closet. Yeah. You know, I maybe she... This is definitely more sporty because yeah. it's a racer back. It's super sporty. Again, this is where we start to see in Scream 2, we start to see Sydney wearing entirely different silhouettes, um, wearing tank tops, yeah. wearing more form-fitting clothes. Mm-hmm. And I would say her color palette actually changes quite a bit too. Yeah. She's I, – I noticed a lot more – we see Sydney in Scream 2 um, at a point where um, like an, a lot of olive green and a mm-hmm. – like an olive green top and a brown le- – I believe that one is where she has the leather jacket – um that one screamed three oh, so, has, so which one's the one is yeah. suede and one is brown they're both so similar so she's got the the bigger the longer brown leathery coat in scream two right. the cropped brown suede yes. in scream yes. three same kind of under uh, like under um top like the same layers yeah, yeah, yeah. which is super reminiscent of how she ends the first film with the blue kind of form-fitting top the black right. jeans and the black leather jacket. Yeah. And now we, we're we seeing the consistency of that layer pattern. Yeah, exactly. So that so that leather jacket is, you know, it's funny how in Scream 3, she then kind of continues that. Almost what I would yeah. say is an exact replica <laughs> of like, at least as far as the color palette and types mm-hmm. of pieces, you get different different textures and stuff that we'll talk more, yeah. more about in the next episode. But um, Scream 2 is where you see that shift begin that sort of sets the tone for where we see sydney going as a young adult absolutely so in scream 2 sydney's now in college i think your point of that the original like final sydney look in scream 1 with the denim jacket the white shirt the black pants black shoes that's already more form-fitting than what you see on her earlier in the film and so it's kind of a perfect segue um into her scream 2 look where she is much more confident She, I think, has come into herself a little bit more. Obviously, mm-hmm. her and Gail both have toughened up. They are. And, and Gail's palette through a lot of this film is black and yeah, white. almost so entirely. It's a lot more – yeah, so she's even matured, even though she was the older woman, a part of this, you know, trifecta of females in, this, in these movies. You know, she's realizing that, you know, there's – we can get away from the colors. Like, you're getting more mature. You can kind of go more black and white, more professional – starting to come into her own now that the book has been released Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. exactly you can see them mature in different ways i think gail her style has actually simplified and i think that yes she you know has lost a lot of her own you know mask in a sense her her mask was this you know Mm -hmm. star she wants to be this star um, and you know that the Versace suit I think really showcased that and then you see her just in this like little black denim number um, or yeah. you see her just like a white t-shirt and black jeans it's like completely different yeah and Sydney's outfits are they are still simple I think that they still feel like Sydney yeah and they do you know, she's not 
louder by any means, but I don't think that getting you know louder would necessarily make sense even. No. I mean, she's still got the layers, but it, her silhouette has become a little bit more form-fitting now that she's becoming more of a mm-hmm. woman and becoming more of her into herself as a, as a yeah. woman. And you can see that a lot throughout the, the course of the story because of, you know, what she's had to deal with and now what she's coming to terms with and everything and, and working with Gail and like, you know, having Randy there. And now she's got a boyfriend, a different boyfriend in this mm-hmm. one. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. I always thought that like her color palette where she started incorporating these like greens and these browns felt a little Laura Croft to me. <laughs> And then you see that continue. Yeah, she she kind of opts for a more sportier cut to her clothing. And it's really interesting because um, did you read the Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix? I have not yet. Okay, it's it's a really good book, but he talks – like the way that he crafts his characters, one of them is based off of Sydney in Scream. Mm-hmm. And her her name is – I forgot her first name, but her last name is Campbell. So he like plays homage to, to the different mm-hmm. Final Girls in, in different ways. But he – but the, our main character – is always, always on in the sense of like, when when you become a final girl, you have to be ready at any moment. Mm-hmm. Or or they, they, they prep themselves for any moment, kind of like how we've seen Lori evolve in the new Halloweens, mm-hmm. where she's kind of, or, where she's not kind of, but she's a survivalist, and she's always like, paired for the worst, and she's got a, you know, a to-go bag ready. Mm-hmm. And Sydney's kind of, Sydney's taken more of a, real, I think, a more realistic approach to how she's coping with her trauma mm-hmm. than just becoming a survivalist and, you know, hunkering herself down somewhere. Although in the third one, she does live, yeah, you know, out of, out of the eyes of everybody. But like, just with the cut of her tank tops and with like the slimness of her jeans, the practicality of her shoes, she, she's now quote unquote on, she's a final girl. She's at the ready if need be. Mm-hmm. And she proves that to us, and she shows that to us. Absolutely, you know, I mean, she looks when the shit hits She looks the fan. ready for business at all times. Yeah, um, and her mm-hmm. her palette's darkened up a bit. You know, it's it's not as yep. youthful. I love it. I think it's a fantastic change, and I actually love her style in general. Um, in I do too. too. Yeah, and then her yeah, and and it really contrasts with because now the pastels are in the sorority uh-huh. with all with Sarah Michelle Geller and all of those characters. Mm-hmm. So they've become the innocent like lambs being led yeah almost yeah with the ribbed sweaters and the texture and the florals like these really innocent prints on these sorority Mm -hmm. girls absolutely i was gonna mention too like i think that when it comes to like the fashion in these films compared to the fashion and that of like you know romeo and michelle and clueless and the more like yeah high femme films of the time i would say that where you see that come through the most is actually in Scream 2 in the sorority girls. And it's kind of like a mm-hmm. late nineties country club Mona May, like, yes. you know, but, but it's also so much more elevated. I mean, you see Sarah Michelle Geller wearing that like gorgeous pink knit thing, um, mm-hmm. like two piece top um, in her death scene. Uh, and then like Portia de Rossi and Rebecca Gayhart are kind of like coordinating throughout the whole film. It looks like they're in, it looks like Rebecca Gayhart in, jawbreaker but like with a softer color palette and like a yes. little more conservative and yeah. i i love yeah it's more it. grounded but i mean i think yeah. that they're in general i know that there was a lot of you know larger labels and like a lot more of the fashion aspect that came through in this film probably because it was like the budget was nine million more than yeah. the first one they were 
I think they maybe even had a little bit more flexibility, but I think that they wanted the sorority girls to stand out more because I would say that like yeah. background characters in general, like the world still felt pretty similar. You still had the blues and the browns yeah. and the basics um, and the relatability yeah. that you that you had in the first one. Um, you just had you know a couple characters being a little more fashion forward in that kind of coordinated Mona May yeah. way that was so influential. Yeah, but I will say these sorority girls, they don't feel stupid. Because the trope that is now being subverted in this movie is that, you know, sorority house massacre, like all of these, the what is it, the sorority bull slime arama, like all of these 80s tropes of mm-hmm. like sorority girls being picked house off on sorority row. And, yeah. yeah, but like these women, while they're wearing these light, fun, feminine colors, and they have all these cute like dresses with the matching sweaters, none of them feel stupid. None of them are stupid. I mean, we have Sarah Michelle Geller in this film. At the height of her career as Buffy, mm-hmm. playing an amazing, you know, strong female character. And she still dies. Mm-hmm. I mean, she just, you know, and she dies in I Know What You Did Last Summer, too. And she was hyper-feminine in that movie, too. But she's still smart and she still fights. And, like, so we're breaking down these tropes, breaking down these barriers that, like, sometimes you just lose. I love Sarah Michelle I Geller. think she's amazing. She could do no Yeah. No, she can yeah. do no wrong. She was amazing in it. She's a, she's a Long Island girl, so that's why. <laughs> I mean, you had so many. I mean, like, again, it's like with Drew Barrymore being killed off immediately in the first one. Yeah. It's like you have Jada Pinkett and you have yes. Sarah Michelle Gellar and you even have Tori Spelling in playing yeah. much smaller roles in Scream 2. Yeah. Um, and you're like, I want more, but we don't get more. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it also is like, oh, okay, well, crap, if they could kill off these big names because Jada Pinkett was in Demon Knight. You know, and she was the final girl in that movie. Mm -hmm. And Sarah Michelle Gellar was Buffy and Drew Barrymore was a huge name. So it's like if you can kill those women off, like nobody is safe anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, And that that is scary. Um, I also wanted to mention that there are some changes in the ghost face, subtle changes. Ghost face costume. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The mask, there's two types of masks as well in Scream 2 that were both produced by Fun World at this point. And the main hero mask was like a standard ghost mask from Fun World and it had like the cotton shroud, that kind of thing. The second mask was known as a Fantastic Faces EU type, um, which also has a cotton shroud. Um, but it was actually nicknamed by fans to be an RDS, which is short for Randy's death scene, uh, which is due to its, you know, the prominence in that film's, or not film, <laughs> in that scene uh, specifically, you mm-hmm. see that mask the most. Um, but it's identifiable because of the stamps under its chin that are like the trademark stamp. Oh, it's really okay. funny. So That's you funny. have to be, I mean, the fans obviously have like eagle eyes when it comes to the Scream films. And so I think it's kind of funny that that mask is, has, yeah. it has its own nickname now. <laughs> the RDS. I also want to point out too that like Ghostface is one of the most popular costumes I think and one of the most recognizable like Halloween costumes out there on the market and unfortunately like through doing some research unfortunately it wasn't until so if you make a Halloween costume from a movie now um, and you know costume designers obviously put their contracts down and and whatnot you know that these that this is their IP um, they can get a cut of of the costume. Mm-hmm. And when I was like poking around and looking at different things, because there's so many ghost face costumes out there on the market, that did not become law until 
one year later, in 1997, mm-hmm. when Deanna Appel, the costume designer from um, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, fought that because costume designers up until that point were not being paid royalties mm-hmm. on their costumes, which it, there's a whole lot of wrong with that. And that's not okay. So like just recognizing the weight of of like Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers and Ghostface and knowing that these designers again were left out of the conversation, left out of the cut. Absolutely. And why it is so important that designers are being taken care of because these things can blow up and you don't know when these things are going to blow up mm-hmm. in the way that they do. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know and it's I mean again, it's part of that larger conversation of taking care of people who are not the director or even the producer or writer you need to take care of the people who are creating things for your film Mm -hmm. who have you know it's it's their intellect that is creating a lot of these looks and i think that should be respected yeah it's you know again like jolene mentioned earlier it does take a village um and every person that creates um, within a film is so important and the film would not be the same without you know one of the puzzle pieces um, and I think yeah. it should all be treated equally um, and fairly. Yeah. And there is a large conversation right now about pay in general and especially pay for um, costume designers uh, right now mm-hmm. um, when it comes to um, like the unions. And I think that that is an ongoing conversation. Things have been much better since the 90s since that. Yes. But mm-hmm. I think there's definitely room for progress. Um, yeah. And there, you know, there always will be, I think. And that I think is a good point to mention when it comes to Ghostface in general because Cynthia in the first film t- custom tailored the the robe and Kathleen uh, DeToro who designed Scream 2 um, also custom tailored the robe but it was they they each had little little differences they they did different yeah I believe they did different fringe at the bottom so Kathleen did like mm-hmm. um, square fringe and then uh, Cynthia did the kind of like tattered like triangle the- things yeah like a nice yeah. pleat yeah. Trim. Yeah. And um, you know, they each have their little stamp on these on this iconic costume. Again, another thing about Ghostface is the the boots that Ghostface wears in the first one and in the second one are widely speculated about. I think everyone thinks and assumes that the boots are Billy's boots in Scream One. But mm. I know that Cynthia has not confirmed that and does not like says that the boots are probably from like Sears or something, but like can't say that it's um, yeah. for sure Billy's boots. And I think that leaving that up for interpretation, you know, we do know that <laughs> Billy is Ghostface at a point, so it wouldn't be shocking. Right. Um, but that they are probably different actual boots. But yeah. are they his? Wouldn't, you know, not make sense. Who knows? Yeah. But yeah, so there are these subtle changes um, in the Ghostface costume. I believe the knife that they use, which is um, classic Buck 120 see general hunting knife Ooh. they <laughs> they they reused i believe uh, i don't know if they reused all of them but like many of them from the first one were reused which makes sense i mean it wasn't shot that long after right and it's still west craven it's still kevin yeah. williamson so they probably had a lot of you know when these when you're when you finish a film and you know that you're going to make another one especially so close afterwards like you hang on to yeah. a lot of stuff yeah absolutely and if you are in the portland area uh, my favorite um video store in town movie madness which is just just the best they have you know every film you could ever imagine great people that work there um but they have a lot of costumes and props on display oh cool um they have a ton i mean they have like just the craziest range of stuff i think they have like the like soap from fight club and they have like a costume for the sound of music like they have a bunch of stuff but in regards to scream they have 
one of the original stunt knives from the first and maybe second film on display. And so if you want to go see the OG knife, check out Movie Madness in Portland and support my favorite local video store. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, what's your take on Scream 2 in general when it comes to stylistic differences? You know, we know that Ghostface has these subtle changes. Gail and Sydney, we can obviously compare to Scream 1 and see how Kathleen shifted their look from, you know, Cynthia's original um, design of them and kind of how Kathleen interpreted what they had gone through and how they would have changed. Um, What's your take on the differences between the films in general? I feel like Scream 2 has a little bit more, because it it knew what it was Mm -hmm. by this time. Obviously, the, the, the obvious that Sydney and all of them are older, they're in college now, the kids. So I felt like there was a level of grounding that the first movie didn't have because now we were getting into like, it wasn't so much the fact that this movie was now a meta horror movie. We know that it was a meta horror mm-hmm. movie and there was so much more, I felt like, to this one. No, not that, I'm trying to find my words right. Um, There, oh, what? how do I want to say this? Because I don't want to diminish Scream 1 because it is, it is so good and it is so perfect, but... Because we know that it's a meta film, when we get to the second one, it's more about the the real life horrors and how these tragedies and how this trauma could follow you. Because now we have the introduction of Cotton Weary. We have the fact that like Billy's mother is taking vengeance on her son or taking, yeah, vengeance for her son, avenging her son. Um, in a very like you know Pamela Voorhees type mm-hmm. of way, and she has the same haircut as Pamela Voorhees, yep. and but she's being planted throughout the film, and you know so it's 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 really about the how tragedies and traumas can follow you and make you a celebrity in ways that you don't want to be a celebrity. Yeah, and we're seeing that thread with Sydney through the stab films, through now her having to go to college. And I find that it's an interesting choice that they make her a theater major. Yeah. And an acting theater major, no less. Not like a crew member, not a technician. That she is secure and like has overcome enough in herself that she wants to be in the spotlight yeah. and wants to be an actor. I find that really interesting. And it is fitting, of course, because when we when people read books and watch movies and in movies – they relate to the movie at large. So the fact that like they're performing a Greek tragedy in this movie kind of becomes a Greek tragedy yeah. with the way that it, 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 it is like a Medea, you right. know, where the mother kills her daughter because nobody else can have her daughter. Yeah. She doesn't want her husband to have her daughter. So she takes her own life and her, her daughter's life. Um, so it does become this Greek tragedy and you have Randy and Dewey as like the chorus. Oh, and, and Gail too is like the, the chorus kind of telling you how the story is supposed to go mm-hmm. as the story is going on. And then, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and that's a great um, scene specifically to point out is when they're rehearsing and Ghostface is actually wearing a brown cloak because that's the costume in the yes. play that they're doing. And the specific play is, I don't know how to really fully pronounce the actual trilogy. I believe it's the Oresteia. That's, that might be wrong. It is a trilogy yeah. of Greek plays centering around um, this ancient Greek woman named Cassandra. Um, Sydney's playing Cassandra. And they're yeah. doing like this one specific play from that trilogy. The chorus is like this, I think within the song and like they're, they're and you know, in the, in the play they're they're wondering if she should enter the palace because the palace she enters, she will die. 
if she does that mm-hmm. and I don't know that's obviously it's just like meta within meta within meta um, but I actually really liked seeing Ghostface in this brown cloak um, I thought that was a really smart scene and the blocking was really good um, the way yes. Ghostface runs away and then it's just that one guy and you're like did she imagine it but she didn't because yes. he was seen running away and you know I I thought it was great. And then also, yeah. yes, I the Pam Voorhees inspo of this um, mm-hmm. Mrs. Loomis slash Debbie Salt character. Um, I think it's great. Also, if I'm not mistaken, you see maybe even in the first time. Ah, it might not be the first time. I believe that she is wearing a cream blazer like suit set. Yes. And in the same way that Pam Voorhees, of course, wears the cream sweater. Yeah. I do kind of like that comparison, that duality. Um, that probably was an inspiration, I would imagine, because yeah. that's such a yeah, you know, the avenging my son kind of thing. Yeah, there's, there's that's the probably the most direct source material you can find within the same genre. So, <laughs> oh yeah, hundred percent. And I will say, with all of the you know accuracies in it, I will point out that um, as a theater major. If you partied on the set the way these children partied on the set, you would be in so much trouble. <laughs> like, you don't have a party no. on the set of the play that you're working on. No. Oh, my goodness. No. No, that's that wouldn't happen. But everything else no. probably would. But I did love seeing um, her boyfriend up on the up on the star thing. Yes. Mainly because I liked the production oh design. But I was like, oh, sparkly. Yeah. Um. yeah. <laughs> Can we also just talk about how Jerry O'Connell just constantly has looked like a dad throughout Forever. his career? Forever. What is that about? Forever. Like, he's in this, like, what, these khakis and this polo, this blue polo. And it, it's very reminiscent of um, the scene in the second season of Parks and Rec when they have the Halloween party and April's two boyfriends come in and they're like, what are you dressed as? And they're like, oh, we're straight guys. And then Mark Brandanowitz walks <laughs> in dressed in that same outfit. And, and they're like, what are you? And he's like, oh, I didn't have time to change. Yeah, so funny. <laughs> Also, can I yeah. just say that I have a crush on Mickey and I'm sorry about it. I'm really sorry. Um, I think he's gorgeous. Don't be sorry. <laughs> he's t- – t- I can't even pronounce his name. Timothy – Oliphant? Oliphant. Right? Yeah. 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 Gorgeous. He <laughs> just gets so good looking with age. It's really upsetting. Like, it, have you seen Santa Clarita Diet? Because he is so No, but I might have serious. to. Also with uh, – isn't that also Drew Barrymore? Some fellow, it is. It's really good. Some screamers. Yes. So yeah, good. It's really good. Uh, I also want to just touch on Sydney's best friend in this film, Hallie. Hallie yes. McDaniel. Yes. What do you make of her wardrobe? I would say it is actually, compared to Tatum, much more conservative. Mm-hmm. It is. I think she's adorable in this movie because she is bridging the the gap between the sororities this like pastel-y kind of world and like Sydney's world. So you're seeing that she's kind of, she is, so you could see how she's friends with Sydney, but how she also wants to be a part of these sororities and wants to be a part of this other world. Yeah. She's the one who ultimately wants to pledge. Um, Cause when we first see her, well, she's in her pajamas, but then we see her in this, like with everybody else in the, in that friend group, mm-hmm. she's got this like, blue pastel you know mini dress on and this really cute white cardigan there's the white cardigans mm-hmm. again yeah i just think she looks really really put together really innocent just very like very much of of that like world of you know sorority collegiate yeah co-ed yeah absolutely you can see how her costume really does bridge that gap of her identity um also yeah. she wears a lot of like yellow and creams which very of the time yeah, but yeah. i think it looks really good on her her outfits are both kind of like different to the sorority girls but definitely kind of mimicking yes. it a little bit but in her own way 
Um, and it's yeah. so nuanced. I think it's really, really well done. And I think that Kathleen did an amazing job at designing that because her look specifically, because it's it's not the loud, bold looks that are hard to design. It's the it's the subtle looks that are hard to design. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I think that comes through so clearly that she is both herself, but also still wanting to be this person. Um, just coming yeah. through in the clothes, I think is a really, it's, it's it's a hard skill to build. But when you have that skill as a designer, mm-hmm. you're a really strong designer. Because that is what personifies a character. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. we talk about it all the time. Like wardrobe is what personifies a character in a film. Probably the most. Probably, you know, more than what's in their room. More than the dialogue. When you're looking, when you look at someone, that's how you tell who they are. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, being humans being visual creatures when it comes to film of course that's you're going to judge a character based on what they're wearing if if she was goth she was wearing this goth outfit you would have a preconceived notion about her and that's what's so interesting is that you know and this is kind of a, a tangent in general about how we view characters that i probably have gone on this same tangent i wouldn't be surprised if i've already gone on this tangent before but i think we repeat our i think we are because they're right and that's why I right. repeat that because we're smart. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think that like the way that identity is played out in film, the the way that you can kind of view someone, it's, it's interesting that as the audience, it's your preconceived notions about what society has told you certain people who look like right. certain things are. You put mm-hmm. that onto what you see on the screen and what you see through these characters. Yeah. And so when you see those sorority girls, um, the way that they're dressed, a lot of the audience, especially in the 90s, are going to assume they're supposed to be bitches. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're supposed to be rude. Yeah. Right. Um, or, you know, when you see Tatum with her fake hard nipples, <laughs> you're like, oh, she, you know, she's, you know, getting around, you know, things, something derogatory right. about her, you know, sex life or, you know, her right. romantic involvements and entanglements or, you know, and even when you see Hallie. Maybe you're even like, oh, she's a wannabe. That's, right. And you, and you see that all through just their costumes alone. And that's why it's so important what they, what they, why what they wear is so important because it does personify them yeah. so much, not even from the costume designer's perspective, but because that is what the audience, the audience will think of someone differently based on what they're wearing, even if the dialogue is the same. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's why this. I mean, and, and like even just Billy Loomis's mother mm-hmm. in this movie where she's posing as a reporter and so she's wearing, you know, one set of skin and then we find out that it's the complete opposite of who she mm-hmm. is and that she's working with Mickey to take, you know, to avenge her son. Yeah, yeah so. absolutely. Yeah, I think even though each film has a different designer throughout the franchise, they all ha- saw what the one before it exactly. did. And mm-hmm. allow the characters to evolve in a very natural way, which I think is really hard to mm-hmm. do when you have different designers on different franchises i mean like most of the time franchises when you know you're going to do a collection of films like something like lord of the rings or harry potter you do have a lot of the same costume designers to keep the world consistent and to keep um you know a lot of like i think of like when i did the studio tour for harry potter like keeping the costume designer consistent because these kids were growing up and you used to show them aging and they're doing the same thing in scream but and so it's it's not an easy task no. for these designers to come in and create their own vision, their own mark on this world while keeping consistent the trajectory of the characters and the growth of these characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that all of them have done 
a really great job in, in introducing new characters, keeping those legacy characters in, you know, consistent growth. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I think that's the reason why people keep coming back to these films and can still enjoy these films because they do feel authentic. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even down to, um, you know, Randy and, and Dewey and, and the second film, just to touch on right. them, like they, there are legacy characters in this film and, you know, R.I.P. Yes. Randy, but um, <laughs> what we do see of him. No, he survives. Is, he's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, he does. He survives. It's fine. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but. But I love that scene with the two of them eating eating Baskin Robbins product placement <laughs> um, and sitting and talking about all this stuff because yeah, I love that. It, they are are wearing the same outfit but different co- but they're but in their color yeah. palette and it's like Randy is becoming a small version of Dewey Little because baby Dewey. with his knowledge of yeah because with his knowledge of horror movies you know how he helped Sydney and Gail in the last film he has the the tools in his tool belt now to, you know, solve these murders with Gail and Dewey. Yeah. So by the two of them, I love that moment between the two of them because it really, it shows their relationship, but then it also shows, you know, the person that Randy is becoming. And he's not just a cinephile. He's a smart guy. He knows his stuff and he loves Sydney and he loves his friends a lot. And he, he wants to protect her. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's just the subtleties, you know, in both of their costumes. Mm-hmm. Like, like you had mentioned earlier, like Dewey, he's he's starting to wear, you know, regular people clothes and not just his cop uniform. Yes. We're starting to kind of uncover and dissect who he is as a person and not just his identity or his mask as a, you know, a policeman. Right. But um, even yeah. Randy, you can see how his color palette has matured. He's gotten the greens, I would say, are less vibrant. He's wearing maybe more browns. He's leaning into the kind of yes. more neutral color palette. Um than his high school self. They've they've all been through shit. And so and I think yeah. that Kathleen did a fantastic job at taking what Cynthia had laid out and translating it in a way that makes sense. It feels and and you know, we'll talk about this with the other films as well, but yeah. you know, speaking to just, you know, Kathleen's work, really I think it was thoughtful. It was insightful. It was well thought mm-hmm. out as to what had happened to these characters, where are they now? While still feeling like the same universe. Um and yeah. again, like maybe it is easier for, you know, this film to feel like the same universe because it was done so shortly after the yeah. first one. Uh, again, mm-hmm. even the third one, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But, you know, and then after that, it's kind of like, okay, wild cards. <laughs> well, then, yeah. then it's like, you'll you'll see what we really think about, you know, how films have evolved yeah. and, and the universe itself. But so far, so good. Yeah, but I will say with the later films in four and in five, mm-hmm. I did notice a lot of, of callbacks to silhouettes, callbacks to colors, mm-hmm. callbacks to like jackets and certain pieces. And so these women are still they still understood the assignment totally. in Twitter terms. One hundred percent. Of like <laughs> Yeah, like these are who these characters are. And I'm sure that the conversation was also informed by these these actors, specifically Nev and Courtney and David, mm-hmm. knowing these characters so well and, and having these characters. I want to call them the Fearless Three because they – we usually get final girls, but the three of them have been our core They're group our of survivors. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So – I, and I'm sure, like, in fittings and working with these designers, they were able to have those conversations about those characters and, like, where they've come from and, like, where they need to mm-hmm. go. Yeah. I love them so much. I'm so excited yeah. to talk about, you know, where the franchise has gone, where it is today, mm-hmm. in our next episode with a special guest. Very excited yes. to bring someone to the the ring to chat with us um, about the Scream legacy. But if you guys have any questions 
or topics or you know tidbits that you want us to cover in part two, send us yeah. your questions. Let us know, um, and we'll be uh, we'll be continuing yeah. the conversation in our next episode. Um, obviously, we have a lot to say. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm. I love this franchise. I think it's genius. And um, yeah, Jolene, do you have any final thoughts on part one of the Scream Legacy? We covered. We a lot. did. We and got we, into it, and it was. We did, and it was like that was super thorough. So I'm super happy with how how we how we did that. So I'm super excited to, to continue to talk about these and to like dive further into them, especially because the you know number four comes out when you and I are teenagers. Yeah. Like yeah. that was the year I graduated high school and I watched that mm-hmm. movie going, oh, I had so many of these pieces. Like these kids were supposed to be my yeah. age. So like that kind of co- comes into our sphere yep. in our realm of like what we were wearing when we were yeah, in high school. Exactly. And that's so that's what so. I mean when I'm like, oh, I got into it when I was a teen. Scream 4 came out yeah. and I wanted to see it and I watched the so that's why I watched the first one. And then okay. I then I was like, oh, I'm into this. And then I watched, yeah. and then I got to Scream 4. And then I saw Scream 4. And so Scream oh. 4 to me is a very special film that I'm very excited to get into. Aww. Very interesting. I have opinions. I do have very interesting opinions that I do you too. all, I'm excited. We'll have, to, we'll have to save it for part two, but yeah. I'm very excited to get into it because I'm very, I'm just so curious to see what you think about that. And um, that time period, that time period of fashion is also just kind of intriguing to me, nonetheless. It is. It is because, it, I mean, we obviously, yeah, we'll wait. We'll get into that because, yeah, just because we could talk yeah, forever. Just, just this, know, everyone, we're thinking, we're stewing, and yeah. we have thoughts, and we're going to share yeah. them. And and know that, like, the offer of if you have questions, if you have, like, hey, I want to know more about this, or can you talk about this movie? Like, our email is in the show notes, and our Twitters and our Instagrams are open for questions like Emma and I are historians. We are fashion historians. This is what we do. And so we want to talk about this stuff with you guys. And we want to know that we're talking about stuff that you guys are also interested mm-hmm. in. Yeah. To keep things fresh. And um, and then we might also learn stuff too because if we have a set of things that we want to talk about, but then you guys throw us something else that we maybe not thinking about. Absolutely. Please. Yeah. I'm, I yeah. love – learning from our our peers in the in the horse space and um we're just really excited to be a part of this community and especially to be talking about scream at such a fun time where everyone is kind of bonding over this it Mm -hmm. feels very warm and cuddly so thank you for listening and thank you for listening to part one of the scream legacy um we're so excited to continue the conversation um and yeah give us a shout if you have any any thoughts yeah for sure thank you as always for joining us guys don't forget to follow us on instagram at to die for podcast that's d-y-e and on twitter at die podcast and next time you go into your closet remember that your pieces could also be to die for